0: Please keep in mind that past performance is not indicative of future performance. Hello, Kate Campbell, and welcome to this episode of the Australian Finance Podcast.
1: It's good to be back, Owen.
0: We have lots of, lots of, lots of questions this time around. Um, Investing questions, some tax questions, and some other stuff in between. So, why don't we get cracking into it? But... Before we do, general advice only. We've got to give you the warning. Any of the questions that we answer contain general financial advice only. The advice is not specific to you, um, any listener, any person that asks a question because we don't know your objectives, your needs, your goals. So always seek the advice of a licensed and trusted financial professional before acting on it. And if we do recommend something or say something like ETF, super, insurance, etc., bank account even. Read the product disclosure statement, it's PDS, PDS, remember it, just Google whatever thing that you're looking at investing in PDS, read that because it has all the information on taxes, risks, fees, et cetera. And last one, past performance is no guarantee of future performance, which is what you see on the ad when they do that hand symbol.
1: Oh, yeah, the industry super the fund Industry
0: thing. super fund, you're not with one of these and they do a weird hand symbol.
1: Oh, uh, yeah, yeah, I haven't watched TV, Netflix all the way.
0: I don't watch TV anymore, says Kate. <laughs> <laughs> On with the questions for this time around. And Kate, maybe you can ask a question because it's a uh, open one.
1: Yeah. So these are two different questions, but I think they're quite similar. So I don't know if you want me to ask them both to you at maybe, a similar time or you want to keep them separate?
0: Maybe we could do one at a time. because Okay. Slight, oh, no, yeah, oh, both at the same time. They are kind of the, much okay. the same. Okay. So
1: the first one is, what industries do you see performing well in 2021, i.e. which sectors are undervalued and which ASX exchange traded funds slash ETFs do you consider to be good value in these sectors? And the other question was, with stock markets at really high valuations at the moment, do you have any ETF suggestions uh, that I could invest in now that might be less susceptible to a stock market collapse everyone's biggest fear, and which sectors mm. do you think would be the most vulnerable? And then they've just mentioned a couple of sort of tech robotic ETFs that they think would probably take a bigger hit if A-tech, something
0: happened. ACDC, and the Robo ETF. Yeah, so yeah. they're a bit worried about we're all, those ones. Are they all ETF securities? ACDC, Robo, anyway, ATEC, ATEC, ACDC, and Robo, R-O-B-O, They're all what we would call thematic ETFs at RASC. Mm -hmm. So we actually have, uh, I don't know the name of this listener that asked this wonderful question, but we actually have an ETFs membership service. Never talked about it on the show. No. Don't know why, (laughs) but people pay us to give research and to kind of give like a a model portfolio. So you can become a member and you would see which ETFs we actually think are the best and we put them in portfolios. Like we have the ethical Mm -hmm. ones and all that sort of jazz. Anyway, you can find out more about that on the site. But... So there are a few things with this question. And the first one is this little section I'm going to pull out. The the question goes, with the stock markets currently at all time or at high valuations? Right. So this is an interesting phrase because people tend to look at a chart of the stock market and if whether they're looking at it over a year, two years, five years, ten years, or they do the max function on Google Finance, (laughs) it goes all the way back to the beginning of stock market history. What you'll notice is the stock market tends to go from bottom left to top right, yeah. and there's a reason for that. is because the companies tend to get more valuable, they tend to be more of them, they tend to make more profits, and that's just human progress and innovation, mm. right? That's the world getting prof- pro- more profitable, getting better, solving more problems, value creation, etc. So this is something that, in all of my years and all of my days and all of my weeks and months of investing, I've heard this. Yeah, with the stock market near all time highs. And that generally follows something about, I'm worried, I'm going to wait. (laughs) And the reason I bring this up is if you look at some of the most rigorous studies on the stock market, what it shows is that the market is almost always near its all-time high because it's very rarely near its all-time low. And when it is, that's when you would buy lots. But we don't know when that is because then people are like, oh, it's going to keep falling. My point here is that when you think about investing, think about it with a five to 10 year time horizon, And a lot of these concerns go away. So fast forward five or 10 years from now, looking back at those charts that you look at on Google Finance or in your brokerage account, if you take a five-year lens, like you click the five-year timeframe, it's almost always the case that it goes from bottom left to top right. But if you zoom right in for a week, a month, six months, sometimes it's not going bottom left to top right. Sometimes it goes flat, up and down a few times or down. But generally speaking, the longer you look, (laughs) <laughs> the more easy it is to see that the trend line is firmly up.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I'm just looking at a chart now. I mean, Google Finance is only sending me back to 2006. But I mean, each point along that thing, you might have thought, oh, I'm at an all time high. And then suddenly, like months later, oh, you're now at an all time high. And then you're at another all time high.
0: And this is the thing, right, Kate? Oftentimes, and this is what we've found in some of the research is that the best companies, so like the highest qualities companies, like the Amazons, the Netflixes, the Googles, the Facebooks, Afterpay, whatever you want, like name something that's done really well over the last 20 years, I, I can almost say for sure that it's often closer to its all-time high than it is to its all-time low.
1: Yeah, I mean for a company to be at an all-time low, it could be back at what it listed, like just yeah. thinking an Australian example of CSL like back at yeah. 250 or whatever, that. For the stock to get to that point, something like disastrous would have to happen and stocks are usually going to be much closer to their all-time high than
0: their their all-time low. Even if you take 52-week highs, stocks are almost, and this is for the high performers, stocks have huge drawdowns, meaning that they get smashed, they're really high performers, mm -hmm. but then they bounce up more viciously than ever before because people go, okay, yeah, it's not that bad. I'd rather use this as an opportunity. And so when you look at um, investing, I want you to always imagine that it's five to ten years because if you do that, a lot of those worries about market tops and bottoms go away. So when we created the um, portfolios for our Rask ETF service, we actually included some of these ETFs. I won't say which ones because that's what we get paid to do. (laughs) So we actually included them and we considered them for different portfolios. And the point is that those portfolios we created are kind of five to ten year timeframes. And let's just use the examples of atech ACDC, or, or Robo. These are ETFs de- designed to be that kind of faster growth, etc. What you want to what you want to consider is that these ETFs are typically a little bit different. So they're not like the Vanguard VAS, the A two hundred from BetaShares, which I own. Full disclosure: they're not like VDHT, which I own also from Vanguard. These are what we call tactical or thematic ETFs. Yeah, and we did
1: an episode a few months back, which would yeah. be really interesting if you want to learn more and you didn't listen to that one to tune into
0: after this episode. Yeah. And so and that, and there's one with Kanish. Yes. Um, that, yeah. Yeah, I don't know where that was. I don't know if it was on the finance pod or the investors pod, but it, we, we've, we've spoken at Kanish as well. Yeah. So what's important to keep in mind here is that when you put these in your portfolio, that you make them a smaller position at least first. So if you're worried about high valuations for the next one, two or three years, Start with a small position and say to yourself, "I'm going to buy one third of my position today, and then one third of my position in a year from now, and one third of my position two years from now." Because then you're not as stressed out about you know all or nothing at once. And then then you ask the second part of the question: is could I invest in you know areas of the market that would be less susceptible to a stock market collapse? And which sectors do you think would be most vulnerable? So you know, firstly, most vulnerable. It's very hard to know in advance, but you know I think this is where diversification is really important so etfs the ETFs that we've mentioned here are all stock ETFs so they invest in the stock market, but there are ETFs that invest in bonds so and you want to, property and property so you you would still want to consider all of those other ETFs alongside these so at a portfolio level, you know we uh, what we typically say is a balanced fund, at least historically speaking, is sixty percent of your money in growth investments. So like shares, stocks, that whatever you want to call them, those types of ETFs. And then 40% of your money in bonds and cash. You can even invest in cash ETFs and what they often are. They're not always the case, but they're just ETFs that go and invest in term deposits. And because everyone's buying together, they try and get buying power at the, the banks or whatever. So to answer your question, I don't know exactly which ones would be less susceptible But there are ETFs available that can kind of do the opposite. Use Best ETFs, which Cadis has put in the show notes. It's our website, which describes all of the ETFs in Australia and what they do.
1: And there's a lot of free research just on those sites about what sectors and what they invest in as well. Yeah. And that can help you if you're trying to build a diversified ETF portfolio and even using that core and satellite approach.
0: Yeah, core, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So
1: you wouldn't be having Robo as your entire por- well, yeah. I wouldn't be. <laughs> yeah. I wouldn't be putting all my money on robotics. I, yeah, I'd be it. diversifying across things. I mean, I don't I don't yeah. have Robo in my portfolio, but I, I mean I was, I'm sure one of my generic Australian ETFs have some exposure to robotics. Yeah,
0: so each of these ETFs slice the pie a different way. And when I say the pie, the pie is the stock market and they're just taking different parts of it. Whereas the big ETFs like VAS, the Vanguard one, or A200 or STW, which is the 200, they take the whole thing. So you would build a portfolio around those types of ETFs and have these ones around the outside and that satellite, tactical, whatever you want to call it. So we've talked about bonds and cash. You don't, you know, the the bond market is very confusing for a lot of people, but it is an important part. If you look at your super fund, your big super fund, they'll show you how much they they invest in bond markets and such. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a reason that they do that. So you could try and copy what they're doing with your own portfolio.
1: Yeah, and I always, always like the hack of if you just want to see what a diversified portfolio could look like, just having a look at some of the robo-advisors and seeing some of their different example of diversified portfolios, that's always sort of a cheat, mm-hmm. um, just... Because balance looks really there's no set definition for balance no so that it looks no, yeah. different across every super fund um, it's always interesting to see how much defensive and growth assets different super funds put in the uh, the balance portfolio. so I definitely uh, look under the hood before you copy any particular one
0: yeah, that's it and you want to decide what's right for you like mm. if you had 90 percent of your money in stock ETFs um, and you plan to retire in two years that's a I would say it's probably not right. But if you plan to retire in 10 years, maybe it's okay to have a bit more. Mm. I actually wrote an article recently where I'd invest $10,000 in 2021.
1: Which probably addresses the, the question of which industries do you see performing well in 2021?
0: Yeah, it probably does a bit. It was kind of tongue in cheek because it says actually just <laughs> go and they just find your investments. Don't worry about timing the market. Just find the best investments you can and buy and hold. And so once you set on like what, how much you want in growth assets and how much you want in defensive assets, you can then put stuff in. But this is a long-winded answer. So I would just say fixed income or bond ETFs, they tend to do act differently to shares. So in a market collapse, they'd act differently. Then there are things called hybrids. Like there's an ETF on the market that does hybrids. And again, very complicated. Then there are even more aggressive ETFs, which I probably won't mention because they're probably not suitable to mention in this mm-hmm podcast, but they kind of move in the opposite direction of the share market and you don't want to hold them for a long time. But, you know, five to 10 years, long-term investing, it's pretty simple. If everything else, uh, your short-term stuff, yeah, I mean, short-term stuff is probably just best in cash or something else. And if you want more like substance behind that answer, please go and listen to the Australian Investors Podcast because that's where we deal with really the nitty gritty of investing.
1: Yeah. And they probably are looking a little bit more about what's the next five to 10 years, what's the economy in the future going to look like? What industries? They get
0: a bit geeky on that podcast. Yeah, we do. We get geeky (laughs) out. So go and check out the Australian Investors Podcast um, and you'll hear some really good insights. If you want to listen to one particularly on this, go and um, listen to the Hamish Douglas episode that I did about a year ago. Mm. Um, He talks about the future uh, generation and
1: Yeah. And there's also, um, if you want a US perspective, invest like the best. They look at all those future trends. So I'd really, yeah, if you want to think about what the world's going to look like in the next 10, 20 years, which might give you an insight into your investing, that's definitely a cool podcast to have a look at. I'll put that in the show notes as well.
0: Yep. Stock market's going to go up, down, everything in between. Just (laughs) buy and buy and buy and buy again. Key is just making sure you have the income and the savings to do so. Kate, what are some tips for? This is an excellent question. We question we get a lot. We should do a um, a, a write up on this and maybe a separate video. Side hustle ideas for students and tips for starting side hustles in general. I wrote for the Motley Fool as a as a freelance writer while I was doing my studies. Yeah. You worked and studied at the same time, um, so
1: yeah, like my whole my life was a side at the moment even my side hustles seem to be costing me money so um, I, I have too <laughs> so many take like, from
0: <laughs> hobbies and
1: stuff so I'm probably not I mean I'm probably the someone that's turned like a side hustle of an interest into a job but yeah just working in finance I mean that was just a side project at the start but now that's where I work, but also specifically for students. And this question came via Instagram and I did suggest um, there's a website called Student VIP so you can sell your notes from your subjects and you can also offer online tutoring and maybe cool. in 2021, maybe face-to-face tutoring. And I know there's a huge market for primary and secondary school mm. tutoring as well. So if you've got any expertise in a certain area, um, that's a good spot. And I know the, the government said there's a lot of students behind this year, so maybe that's an opportunity to do some primary, secondary teaching, um, tutoring on the side because there's a lot of people to catch, mm. trying to catch up on stuff they missed last year. So that's that's an opportunity where you could make some money and you could also
0: help someone as well. And that's a, that's a great one. Good answer. You, you've also got here. Do you have a skill that people might pay for? There's so much. Right? We've got air tasker. We've got, you know, even if you're phys- physically able, you can, you know, you can go and h- work in labor jobs, or you can do things that are kind of on the side and, and do your own thing there, and you can learn how those businesses work and maybe even do it yourself. So, another thing that's caught a caught, uh, kind of caught on is uh, what's very trendy at the moment is people making furniture, making things. Like out of secondhand or reused materials, and then they go and sell and they sell them for five times the amount they're cost yeah. brand new. But because it's handmade and it's made with care. And it's I just think a creative little thing. And that a people lot of people's
1: doing. discretionary money that they might have been spending on travel is now spending on sort of things to decorate their home because they're spending a lot more time at home. So even food, I mean, I've I've known a few people that just started selling food and doing like grocery stuff in their local area. So just different things like that, and even making Um, offering your services to set up IKEA furniture for people like beds because, uh, I mean, I helped a friend with it once and I definitely realised why you would pay someone to do it. Mm. It's not a fun
0: task. No, it's not. And the thing is, if you see something that you can do, You can make money from it because people will find value in that. So
1: Yeah, and just listen to people in your friends and family. What have they paid for recently? Are there some little jobs or something they wanted to buy that they supported a local person with? And, well, could you do that as well?
0: And people at school that are young and ambitious, they often have skills that they don't even know about. So things like you might be much better with technology than a lot of people. So what can you do with that? Um, You might be doing a design course. Well, can you sell something that relates to that? Or, you know, and then, I mean, you already mentioned tutoring, but that's just a very general but very good one. Like uh, I got tutored in school, in secondary school, and it was so valuable just having a student, an older student come in and tell me what's this like equation in maths, like this is crazy. Yeah. Hearing it from a younger person was so valuable and quite happy to pay for that. So, mm, yeah. yeah, just be a bit creative. If you do have any of these, please let us know because we struggle. I struggle with finding an answer to this, to be honest. Yeah. I do. So, if you do have something that you've done or your kids have done,
1: yeah, share it in our Facebook community. Let us community know in the Facebook
0: well. community because we'd love to be able to share your answers to these questions as well. Because I, I, don't, I simply don't have good answers to that.
1: Yeah, and I mean, someone that's at uni right now. I mean, I, I technically am, but <laughs> I don't have a. I'm not side hustling at the moment, but um, they might have a great idea. So if, if you do have any ideas, uh, chuck them in the Facebook community, and we'll put that link in the show notes so we can uh, inspire everybody. And I guess in terms of tips for starting side hustles, I'd just give it a go and don't spend more than a couple of hundred dollars yeah. getting anything. Make a profit <laughs> first. Make yeah. a profit
0: first, then spend on the, the big stuff that you need. Don't overcapitalize it because it will go in the opposite direction.
1: Yeah, I see see people spending thousands of dollars trying to start up a a side hustle or um, getting uh, taken in by one of those multi-level marketing businesses that Uh. often have a really high startup cost. Uh, So please, please don't. Um, A side hustle shouldn't be costing you a fortune to start. You're not starting a company here. You're just uh, trying to make a little bit of money on the side. So you don't want it to end up eating up your money.
0: Pretty much anything that you get out of a box is not a side hustle. That's you're buying something. You are like if it if it's a business in a box, it's not a side hustle. That's something else entirely. So yeah. really you do have to think outside the box here to get a really good side hustle. And oftentimes they come to you because it's something that you can do or you're passionate about anyway and people just think, that's great, I'll pay for that.
1: Yeah. Like and making I mean, dog
0: kennels. Or
1: <laughs> if you just listen dog to ball. the podcast Side Hustle Show by Chris Gillibo, he has a different three-minute episode every single day. He's done it for a few years now of just someone sharing their side hustle and just the amount of unique ideas around the world that people have done and they've made some money on. It's just incredible. So if you want to spend some inspiration, have a look there as well.
0: Cool. Good idea. Good suggestion. All right. I'll read this out, Kate, because it sounds like something that we can both answer. Mm-hmm. I'm a single mum with two kids and I'm looking to invest in the best way I can to help set up my kids and pay for their private education. I have, so keyword their private education. We did an episode on that. We did school fees, mortgages, and cars. Mm-hmm. That's an episode from about a year ago. Please go uh, have a look at that. I have a tiny amount of shares and a small amount of s- silver. The only debt I have is my mortgage. What would be your recommendation slash suggestion for the best investment?
1: Okay, well, we don't know how old these kids are. Let's say they're around five. If you're going to have to right. start paying for school by 10 or 11 for private school, maybe you've got six or seven years yep. um, to think about this, and then private school for two kids, what are you, I don't know, with inflation maybe yeah, 70, expensive. 80K a year for two kids at private school if Is we're that? in Melbourne, Shh. Sydney. Wow. They're around 30 to 35K k like by year 12 at the moment with inner city in Melbourne. I don't know. Sydney might be more.
0: Um mackerel. Yeah. we did this research actually <laughs> now that you've mentioned it when we did that episode and we did a deep dive on it. Yeah.
1: I mean private private schools like in regional areas, I know there's like some in Ballarat, and Bendigo, in Victoria itself, they're a bit cheaper. Yeah. But, yeah, if you're in a city you're, you're going to be forking out at least 30, 35 by the time, I don't know. Yeah, in a few years, maybe you need eighty k for two kids each year.
0: So we're, all, I think we're all a bit inherently biased about this education thing. I know we can't spend too much <laughs> long on this, but uh, too long on this sorry, But I just think, like, I didn't go to a public school and I didn't go to a private school; went for something in between. Mm-hmm. I can't see the value in that personally. That's just we did that episode and I remember doing a deep dive on it, and I emerged and out of this kind of rabbit warren after a few weeks of research. I'm like, the stats just don't add up. Mm.
1: Yeah, and I think everyone's got really strong opinions either way, maybe depending on where they went to school. Sometimes families want to send multid, multiple generations to the same school. That's fair. And it also different priorities to where they're spending money. And, I mean, I've met some families that instead of putting the money there, put the money aside for the kid to do something else. I mean, yep. it's a lot of money either way. Okay. But I, I guess it's just like what's your priorities and... Seven, maybe seven or eight years is quite still like we'd say a, a short investment time frame.
0: Yeah, because I mean, by the time you make your first two years of investments, you're already coming into that five year window, which yeah. is probably not that, not what we consider long term. But that, yeah. That said, if this money is going into a separate fund, so if you're saving money that's going into a fund that you are definitely not going to touch for seven years, you can afford to take risk with it. Mm-hmm. But if you're putting this money, into like your everyday account and you might need a draw on it in the next one or two years. Like you don't, what I mean to say is if you don't have your emergency fund already there, there's no way that this money should be invested in the stock market. You should get that first because that will give you confidence and peace of mind and sleep at night factor. Then invest for the education. Now, so to answer your question, because we got way out (laughs) sidetracked. We did, we did. So there are many different ways to do this, to invest for your children. Mm -hmm. Seven years, as Kate says, is not, um, as long as some of the questions we get. Normally we get questions on, my child has just been born. I want to give them money when they're 18 or 21. Yeah. That's long-term, so you can take a lot of risk and then you can start thinking about things like investment bonds if you're so inclined, which are very um, complicated. You'd want to see a tax agent or advisor about that, but you can start thinking about that thing. In this case, we, we're we assuming that you don't have that long. So first things first, I, I've never understood the allure of things like gold and silver, Long term investments. Now, I understand that they have gone up in price, and I understand. So have
1: many things at the moment.
0: So have a lot of things. I don't understand that. That's just me, and I understand their place in why financial advisors use silver or gold or platinum or Bitcoin or all that stuff because it's a hedge. It smooths out the volatility. For me personally, I don't think it's their investment grade. When you go then, okay, I'm going to set this money aside for my child's education. You can get more complicated about it and Kate has done a brilliant blog post on this about where you would have to put your investments like in a separate brokerage account or something like that. The fact is that children under a certain age cannot own shares so you can't put it in their name. You'd have to put it in your own name and then you would have to try and do some tax fun stuff to try and transfer it to them when they get to a certain age but in this case, it's going to schooling so it's going to be in your name. You're going to pay it. I would just say this is my kind of general answer to all this stuff, Kate, and I know you've got a better answer than I do, is if you personally have enough money set aside, then you can do these things. Mm -hmm. So people try and over-engineer it and they go like, oh, well, I need to put this money aside for Jimmy, that aside for Stephanie, Mm -hmm. and this aside for Ava, and then we're good. If you as a parent or as a couple are prepared financially, then you can deal with it. Mm -hmm. So that should be your first point of call. We've got some um, I've, I've done an artic- I wrote an article recently how to invest for kids in 2021. here's the summary. start now every day week month year that you delay is compounding that you'll never get back. So just start putting the money aside in a stockbroken account in an ETF, in a diversified ETF, whatever the case. Take our beginner's course. keep it simple. You can always change strategy in a few years once there is more in the account. So you can always start it in your name and then you decide, I'm not going to send them to private school. I'm actually just going to save for their first home because I think that's a better way for them to get ahead. Then you can start saving it in their name. You can change it over and start saving it in their name. Consider how long you have to invest. You said seven years is probably not long enough.
1: Yeah, I'm just – I don't know when the kids are in this question, so I'm just sort of giving – An age, but yeah, I think if you were, if you wanted to save and invest in preparation for private education, you probably have to start quite early.
0: Yeah, yeah, you would.
1: Yeah, unless you're on a really high income where you have enough disposable income to just put that money straight to
0: the school fees each year, because it's a lot of money. It is a lot of money. It's a lot, a lot of money. That's why a lot of kids don't go to private school. Yeah, yeah.
1: Um. So I mean, I. Even just people's thoughts on education I think over the next sort of decade are going to change a lot and where they prioritise and it's going to be interesting to see. I mean I think private schools will probably always have a place. There's always going to be people that want to spend more money on different things and different priorities but, yeah.
0: There are a lot of soft benefits that go alongside at a private school, not just necessarily the education, which is what I was basing my rant on earlier on. Um, (laughs) So then use a handful of, and this is back to my tips, uh, use a handful of low-cost vanilla ETFs, so shares ETFs, particularly those which hold more than 100 shares. Mm. So this is from an article which we put in the show notes. We're talking about here just like those bottom drawer ETFs. They're going to go up, they're going to go down, they're going to crash, they're going to bounce, they're going to do everything in between, they're going to go sideways, <laughs> they're going to pay dividends, some won't. You know, these are the types of things that you can use for long-term wealth creation. If you're planning to send your child to private school in one to two years, yeah, I wouldn't be putting any of it in the stock market. Because they're probably not going to end up going to the private school if you do that because the stock market could fall, it could rise, it could do whatever. Mm-hmm. It's too much stress. Um, last one, talk to your accountant or lawyer if you plan to invest a lot of money. So a lot of money, like $20,000, 50000 $100,000 up front because they might be able to help you in ways that you know we can't suggest on this yeah. podcast. So things with like tax, different structures. Um, this is a really important topic. Again, it's one that we've covered a few different ways, but we've had to make some assumptions in here. Basically, the longer you have to invest, the more risk you can take with that money. Now, you're going to need a lot of money. I would really, really strongly advise you to go back and check out our previous episode on cars, mortgages, and education because those are the three biggest costs most people have in their life. Um, and we came up with some ways and ideas around saving money and also whether it's worth if it passes muster.
1: Yeah, and I uh, what I just sort of finish off with it, Owen and I both don't have kids, so we don't really understand maybe the emotional side of things, but I wouldn't be putting yourself into debt, into financial stress. I I wouldn't let it affect your health and well-being trying to find the money for school fees. Um, if there are plenty of people we know and have been to public school and it, it ends out fine. So I, yeah. yeah. I just, I wouldn't like sacrifice everything else at the cost of one aspect.
0: I guess, okay, let me just, (laughs) let me do the mic drop. Let's get the mic and just drop it. So if you weigh up the cost of private school versus the semi-private, which is very similar in terms of the atmosphere, maybe without the rowboat club, but, (laughs) but if you weigh up all the money that you put into a child's education and you took that, it would be enough to buy them a, a very good house or at least a very, very good deposit on their first house. <laughs> they wouldn't have to save for that. They could go to Kentucky at 18, 19, 20, 21, get through their uni degree and come out and you can say, here's the all you need for a deposit and more on your house. <laughs> or, and I've paid for your more uh, your your wedding, by the way. Personally, this is my preference. I think that I would rather do that. Yeah. That's just me. And that's if you again, if you go back to that original podcast, we talk about the how much it truly costs.
1: Yeah. And I mean, some people have the money to do all of it, and some people will have to make a choice about what's the priority. Yeah. And it's yeah. going to be different for everyone.
0: Yeah, I'm sorry that that was a bit, Yeah, I think we got very... We, we, that was a digression. Okay. <laughs> we very yeah. much
1: digressed. Yeah, <laughs> okay. Okay, let's get a bit more serious. So someone had just listened to our podcast on insurances. Um, may have been the very... The insurance episode we did back at the start of 2019, back in the day, yeah, back that was a long time ago. So, quick question: Is it worth having life insurance outside a super fund, or am I better cutting losses of the premiums I paid? So, I'm assuming this person's got super uh, life insurance outside their super fund. So, better cutting off losses um, and making the life insurance in my super fund.
0: Yeah. Okay. I think that's the yeah. yeah I think, so let's just uh, inside or outside? of super? Yeah. That's a question. So, yeah. why, why don't you just say for those people who don't know where life insurance can be owned or whatever?
1: Yeah. So, you can, I think we talked about it a bit because I know Owen personally has life insurance set up inside of his super fund and he makes contributions each month to sort of offset that cost. And I think we discussed back at the start of 2019 that was a really cost effective way to have life insurance, was total permanent death disability. CPD. Yeah. Yep. I might have added a word there. And also, Income insurance.
0: Income protection, yeah. Yeah. Those three are the big three.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, is there a trauma insurance?
0: I think it's caught up in TPD. There are, There is a fourth insurance that we got corrected on when we had the, the guy from HIA Life here. Yeah. But it's not as common. So the three big ones are TPD, life insurance, or we should call it death insurance, and income protection. Those three.
1: Yeah.
0: The definitions of what they are had has changed over the years. So- th- what you really need to understand is that inside of superannuation you will normally have default super cover uh, insurance cover. Um sometimes that's adequate most of the oftentimes it is for younger people in particular but if you have existing pre-existing conditions and you've switched super funds recently you might not have cover yeah, because they might say to you.
1: And they've changed the laws in the last few years so it's sort of an opt-in yeah. method now especially if you've got a really low super balance they may have turned off Yep. your insurance um, or you might not have enough money in that super to keep paying the insurance. So if you, if you stop paying, well.
0: Yep. It's gone. Yeah. So these are all things you'd want to check with the super fund. And basically the way it works is you can have income protection, for example, that gives you $6,000 a month after a waiting period. Like if you injure yourself, you're going to wait 60 days and then there's $6,000 a month and you can pay for that insurance at, like you do out of your pocket, like you pay for your car insurance. Yeah. But you can also hold that insurance inside your super fund, mm-hmm. meaning that you don't have to pay it out of your pocket. Your super balance pays it. Yeah. So that's what I do. So it's automatic. You
1: don't even have to think about it yeah. as long as you've got money in there to pay as for it. As long as you've got
0: money there. <laughs> and you shouldn't just assume the default level of cover is enough. Yeah. Because oftentimes you get like put in some weird like demographic band and mm. it's like, oh, and yeah, your wage outside of super is normally $7,000 a month, but hey, we've covered you for $1,500 Good on us. Like, no, you need to go in and check if it is actually enough. And so there are benefits to having super uh, income protection inside or outside of super, because when you receive your income protection, you'll get taxed. So it's just like normal wage. You can get a tax deduction when you pay it outside of super. So some, some people are like, oh, I'll pay it out of my own pocket, as in I'll hold it in my own name, not in my super fund, and I'll get a tax deduction for the premiums. Yeah. Um, sure. But I'm often of the opinion that don't let the tax tail wag the dog in this instance. Like it's very easy just for me to put it inside super. Um, there are some certain rules around like, you know, claiming how if it's harder or easier to claim inside super. It's generally pretty smooth sailing but um, you'd want to read the PDS. Yeah. The insurance, just be aware. Okay, so this is my final tip for this one. When you read the insurance guide for your super fund, just like pay very Particular attention to any section where they say limited cover or restricted cover, right? So you obviously want to look at like exclusions, like what they do and don't cover, because they're all a little bit different. But those sections are really important because let's say that I'm with a Host Plus and I've just transferred to Australian Super. I'm thinking happy days, they're both good super funds, they both got good insurance policies. But when you switch, you might lose some of the insurance cover. Because you might have increased the amount of cover, and Australian Super's thinking, why have they increased the cover? They need to have There's a bit of a wait. We have to apply a waiting period. Or you might come across and you might have had a hernia last year. Mm-hmm. And then Australian Super says, well, we're not going to cover you for that for the next 24 months. So you'd want to read anywhere where it says restricted, limited cover, exclusions, waiting periods, et cetera.
1: Yeah. And I think, I think was something I was reading on Canstar said that um, it can be cheaper inside super but sometimes there's um, less options or if you have some specific I don't know medical issue or something like that you may not be able to get the same levels cover as you might be able to get outside of it so it might be less yeah,
0: options it's less flexible so what we call it inside we call it group that in, uh, group insurance inside so what happens is everyone's the reason why it's cheaper is me Kate the whole office, all of our team, you know, we go with one super fund and there's, we're alongside thousands of other people. And then the super fund says to one of the big insurers, like if it's TAL Life, T-A-L or AIA, they say, "Tell, we've got a million people in our super fund. What can you do for us? Like how much can you drop those prices? And they say, oh, we'll, we'll do it for this price. And because we're all together, we have bargaining power. So that's why the, the, the insurance is typically low because it's got that group insurance. But then they have like a blanket kind of this is the insurance that you get. Whereas if you go see a specialist financial advisor or risk um, advisor, they'll be able to find the right plan for you and sometimes depending on who you are, they might even be able to write a separate type of policy for your coverage. So if you have particular exclusions or you have medical conditions, like you know, obviously a big one is, and this is really important and it's not just life, death, uh, TPD, income protection, it's also health insurance. Is that if you've had cancer, if you've had any major medical conditions, this is why no one really talks about this stuff. Be really careful before you switch yeah. because you want to know exactly what you're covered for. Have it in writing, read the PDF, speak to your financial advisor because I've heard of people that have had cancer or if cancer's in their family or they've done an injury in some way and they go to a new provider and it's not covered.
1: Yeah, I so mean, there's be really like, once you've got the insurance, there's a like you've got to be really careful before changing insurances, yeah. especially with life insurance because it's such a it's such a huge policy. Yeah. At the end of that, if you're getting a million dollars paid out to your loved one, like they, uh, yeah, you just got to be very careful before transferring. So if you are thinking about moving from outside to in, inside to out. Um, This is probably the area that it's most important to get advice and I believe you can get a limited statement of advice from an advisor so it's a little bit cheaper than what it's Yeah, you can go and
0: some advisors uh, specialists in this, some Mm. won't touch it. There is a thing, let's just talk about the actual payout that you would get from a death insurance. So let's say I cark it, who gets the money, right? Because we said that the insurance is held by the super fund on your behalf. What's really important, and I mentioned this in our ADA, um, our complete money guide on RASC education, the free course, and I mentioned it in the old style Rask invest, is there's a thing that you can do inside your super called a binding death benefit nomination. Now, a binding death benefit nomination means that your superannuation is paid to exactly who you want it to go to. Like many things, like a will, things can be challenged. Yeah. If you do a binding death benefit nomination, and that might be as simple as, it's a piece of paper, it's one A4 sheet of paper that you sign and send back, Yeah, it's just a bit of annoying paperwork, but if you do that, it goes unequivocally to those people that you nominate on that form and in that that percentage, but it also can go to your estate, so meaning that it can be pushed into your will once you die. The super funds make it really easy to do a non-binding death benefit nomination, meaning something that's not legally binding. Yeah. So that's a bit more flexible on the super fund. It's still a good thing, but it's not as powerful as the binding death benefit nomination. So you can do that too. And you can nominate the people you want. Just remember that they expire. So after three years, I believe it is. You'll need to do a new one. You know, some people say that you don't need them. Some people say you do. But just read up on that binding death benefit nomination. I hold mine inside Super, like yeah. a lot of Australians. For Pretty a
1: easy form, and it's different to a will. But if you don't have that death nomination, then I guess it just falls into the estate.
0: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, unless it gets challenged um, and it goes to like a superannuation complaints tribunal or something like that. Yeah, like like a will, you need a good plan for your for your super monies as well.
1: Yeah, because it is your money.
0: Yep. Okay, so we've got uh, one more question and I'll ask this of Kate. One question I have for the podcast is, uh, is where I get a little bit confused by all the paperwork, owning shares or ETFs, and I never know what I need to keep for tax time and what I can get rid of. What do I need to get rid of and what I need to Kate, uh, keep, Kate, for tax <laughs> time?
1: <laughs> uh, all the paperwork confuses me too. Um, I've just got stacks of it at home. So I guess when you buy a share or an ETF on the ASX, you'll usually get a piece of paper that on sort of a blue paper from Chess in the mail and that'll say units on or units off. It'll say what um, you invested in. It'll have your name and address and I think it has your hint with some X's, um, your holder identification number. So I don't think you really have to keep those. I mean I've, never I've shredded one. a lot of them but then I see some people with piles of yeah, them. I've seen someone on Twitter
0: today <laughs> had about a 1,000 pieces of paper. I was like, oh.
1: I mean when I worked in financial services, we just shredded them. So I don't know. There you go. So that's not that important. Um, You also get some papers saying you can set up online access or depending if you already have. So that's with the registries. So that's the share registry such as Link, Boardroom, Computer Share, you might hear those names. So each company and ETF listed on the Australian Stock Exchange picks a, a share registry to do all the paperwork and the administration for the shareholders. Um, So you can create an account on link market services or computer share and you can add all your holdings there and you can tick, I want to have email notifications. You can edit your bank account details there. You can edit your dividend reinvestment plan if it's available and you can check your tax file numbers added. So um, I definitely set up your account with the registries. Make sure all your shares and ETFs are linked. Uh, Make sure your tax file numbers down because uh, it's always annoying when withholding tax is withheld uh, because you didn't put tax file number down and that's happened to me before just from sheer laziness. And then what happens? Uh, So then when I do my tax return at the end of the financial year, if you remember in the withholding tax section, you can write the total amount that was withheld. Right. But if you don't remember, then
0: (laughs) you paid extra tax. So one of the things of share registry, like who the dang F is this share registry? Well, the share registry is if you buy shares in Commonwealth Bank, it's not Commonwealth Bank that sends you the letter to say welcome to the shareholders. Yeah, It is this registry and this company takes care of everything. And typically that first letter, even the one that we say you can shred, you can typically, I believe, use that to then set up preferences on computer share and, mm. and do all that sort of stuff. And you want to go and set that up because then you can do things like dividend reinvestment plans. So you can um, elect to get your dividends as, uh, as new shares rather than as cash. Or you can um, like get information for tax time. You can vote on things. Mm -hmm. You you can like when a company announces votes. So you can do all of that. And that's all through the share registry. At the end of the tax year, you will get a statement from your ETF provider. That comes between July and October.
1: Yeah. And you can if you've registered for emails, they'll all come via email at similar times. And you can also access those statements as well as transaction statements and things in the registry as well. So often your your accountant might ask for those statements because especially for sort of exchange traded funds, they break down the different components. So, mm. um, and franking credits for shares, if that's relevant. Um, so you might need to send those details to the accountant. But I guess just in terms of keeping records. Some people use a Excel or Google Doc. I've used ShareSite in the past. That's free for up to 10 holdings, I believe still. Um, So that's quite a good way to keep um, track of things because you'll need to know things like your purchase date, which is even more important if you purchase the same thing multiple times, the price you purchase, so your cost base, what the stock code or ETF code was, total purchase costs. They're just a few of the basics. Do you keep track of anything else
0: in your well it depends too because if you're investing overseas you've got FX so you might want yeah, to I'm think just, about like I'm dividends I'm just sticking Australia for now I uh, just thinking <laughs> keep it simple yeah so now that's really all you need and share site will do that or your broker sometimes provides some enough information yeah
1: so you need to keep some data to work out capital gains or capital losses so yep. you'll need to keep the purchase and sale data and then you also need the data from if you receive a distribution or dividend from yep. your holding as well so they're two different things the government wants to know about the ATO
0: yeah, at tax and, time. And the thing is with ETFs and managed funds is that what you receive in your bank account isn't always the same as what you like, you have against your name, right? Mm. Like sometimes you, know, you might receive foreign income rather than just Australian income. Yeah. You might receive capital gains that you thought was a dividend. So you just want to make sure that you put each of the different pieces of um income in the right thing and that's where you get your share registry or you get a letter from the from the ETF provider to fill that in so that's really all you need is just access to the share registry, fill it all out of the paperwork and then you don't need to keep all the mountain of paperwork. And oftentimes they send you things like annual reports or quarterly reports in the mail. Yeah,
1: they're huge You're like, huge I can just, get this. You can just like, get this online. You don't want to kill trees. Like if you don't turn all your settings to via email, you're killing a lot of trees. Yeah. And also one thing I'll note is also when you set up your registry, um, make sure the TF tax file numbers there. And also make sure bank details are there. I've known a lot of people who haven't Mm. um, recorded their bank details. Sometimes your broker does it automatically for you, but sometimes randomly it doesn't happen. That's happened in the past. And then if there is a distribution, they can't pay it to you. So they just hold it. And there's so much money sitting with the, the government because after a certain amount of years, it the registry sends it to the government to go into this money pit. There's so much money sitting there because people just haven't given bank account details um, and the distributions. So make sure you go and uh, put your bank details there. And I think there's even a, I don't know if it's via the ATO, there's another website you can type in your name and see if there's any missing money owed to you, um, which is a really good tool. I know plenty of people, especially older people, if you have a grandma or a grandpa, put their name in and see if they've lost um, any money. I think, yeah. How
0: rich, how rich is grandpa anyway? Because
1: <laughs> <laughs> a lot of yeah. people have lost super and ET, uh, distributions over the years and shares, I like people that bought shares back yeah. before the internet. Um, so it's it's definitely a good idea to keep track of things. And there is a little bit to keep track of, but if you put in the groundwork and set it up so you've got all your logins to your registries, it makes it so much easier than just sort of leaving it to tax time and realizing it's a mess. I've uh, slowly tried to increase my uh, organization each year because it's just been a nightmare doing taxes when you're not organized and you've been buying and selling a bit. So.
0: Absolutely. Kate, I'm going to give you a 30 second time for this last question. This is a question that came from our Facebook group, which is just thriving. It's wonderful to see. What was What is the best time of the day, week or month to invest? Your answer, 30 seconds starts now.
1: Uh, when the market's open regularly and not within the first 30 minutes.
0: <laughs> that was seven seconds. I'll try and beat that. I invest, I typically invest on in the first of every month because it makes it easy for me and that's when we do our budget. Great. So the point is that from both answers is do it on a regular, <laughs> at a regular day that works for your budget and just do it. Stop. Don't overthink it. Just buy, whether the market's high, whether it's low, whether it's somewhere in between. Don't think about what's coming around the corner. Just keep buying, just keep buying, just keep buying 10 or 20 years. (laughs) Kate, we've (laughs) spoken for a very long time about some topics and we've gone in totally different directions. Sorry, everyone. This is our first Q&A of the new year. We'll be more concise and focused next time. But Kate, as always, if people want to ask a question, how do they do that?
1: Uh, hit us up at podcast at Rask, rask.com.au. I'll be able to say that one day, but it'll be in the show notes <laughs> Yeah,
0: podcast at rask.com.au. You can also reach us on Instagram, Twitter. We're both on that. So is the Rask Australia. And you can just jump into the Facebook group and ask questions in there too. We may, I'm going to try, maybe try and do some live kind of feed straight into the group. So if you, if you want to get in there, we're going to try and do some like two minute videos and just answer your questions live. So you can do that too by getting into the group. Cool. Okay. Better wrap it up. Okay. As always, thanks for joining me. Thanks
1: for listening. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Australian Finance Podcast, where our mission is to improve the financial futures of all Australians.
0: Finally, if you have any feedback, suggestions for episodes or guests to come on the show or you just have a question for us, shoot us an email at podcast at rask.com.au.